soared to the cloud. Okay. We just learned that this morning. Okay. Nifty trick. Is everybody ready to get started? Great. So thank you for coming. This is Lilith Shapiro and Spencer Torres for the Colorado Springs LGBTQ plus oral history project. Thank you for speaking with us today. As we get started, please let either of us know if you need a break. And as we begin, could you please state your full name and how you choose to identify? Sure, my full name is Amanda Yudis Kessler. I identify as she, her, hers. Um, please feel free to let us know if you feel as though we have overstepped or crossed into any subject you do not wish to discuss. Of course. Um, let's start. Where were you born? I was born in New York City. Did you enjoy growing up in New York? You know, I did in many ways and I still miss it. Um, it, it was a great place to be around um, a very diverse group of people. So I uh, grew up in a race and class diverse neighborhood and certainly uh, for all the things that were challenging about it around sexuality, at least I grew up where there were uh, openly lesbian and gay people and where my parents had lesbian and gay friends and so on. And so I loved that. It also was an incredibly culturally rich place. I grew up, grew up uh, going to see Broadway shows and all sorts of other theater and art and music. So yeah, it was a good place for me to come from. That's so nice. Did you grow up with faith being a part of your upbringing? I did not. I grew up a secular Jew. I like to joke that my uh, mother worshipped Freud and my father worshipped Marx, even though that's slightly off. But my father's side of the family were, uh, for several generations, had been, I don't know if they were exactly socialists or communists or what, but something way out on the, the left end of the spectrum. Uh, again, everyone was Jewish, um, but uh, neither of my parents were observant. So I later uh, found my way into a, a life of uh, faith exploration, which has been really interesting and which I'm happy to talk more about depending on how this all goes. Thanks. Would you say that Growing up, the community you were raised in, maybe thinking like the social circle you were in at the time played a role in how you were raised or led to how comfortable you maybe felt coming out? Well, I actually, that's a really interesting question because my experience involved what I would say was some degree of betrayal. I really expected my parents to be fine because again, uh, they had lesbian and gay friends. My mother was a social worker. My father, when I was quite young, was a songwriter kind of working off Broadway and, um, uh, and, and his extended family was involved in classical music. And so there, there just were a lot of occasions for there to be um, people um, in, in my, in their lives who were lesbian or gay, I, 
I'm sure there were bisexual people, but I, I didn't know that when I was um, a child or I didn't know who among my parents' friends were. So I expected them to be really quite open-minded. Um, and also, again, growing up in New York, um, I was too young to recognize what Stonewall was when it happened, but certainly I, I grew up in a neighborhood just north of Greenwich Village, an area called Chelsea. And so I was kind of one neighborhood away from where the gay bars were and the, the gay stores were and all those things. So, so it, it should have been about as, as good a, a, a possible venue as I could have had. And it was therefore surprising to me when I eventually did come out publicly how difficult it turned out to be. Um, but I, having said that though, I do think the very fact that there were, you know, male couples walking on the street in the summer when I was a kid, um, and that there were identifiable gay bars and stores and things, that really was helpful for me because I was not one of those people who grew up uh, in a part of the country or even in a country where these topics were completely invisible. So I, I credit that with at least making me aware that there was a culture and a community out there. What were your views of the queer community as you grew up? Well, you know, I grew up so long ago, I'm 54 now. And so I was a child in the kind of late 60s, early 70s, into the late 70s. And this is so early in the development of the community and, and so sort of soon after Stonewall and the big political movement that I, like everyone I knew, had a sense that homosexuality and transvestitism and transgenderism were weird. They were strange. Um, and it's so funny to you know, say that now after all these years, but it, it, it definitely was still, um, a kind of a different way to be in the world. And, and so quite apart from any messages I got from my parents, um, you know, I think they loved their lesbian and gay friends. I think they were, you know, a bit judgmental of them and they didn't quite understand them and they found them a, a little bit weird, but they were, you know, intending to be kind people. Um, but it is also true, of course, that I grew up with every possible derogatory term for lesbian or gay you can imagine. And, you know, maybe some you can't, um, but, um, you know, the F word was just common parlance among people I knew. And, you know, if I were out on the street as a child and, you know, say a male same-sex couple walked past, someone would be yelling fag at them. So, what I, what I saw was definitely that, that this community was there, that these people were there, but that it really wasn't okay. And also, even in New York City, you know, uh, as soon as I realized that there were pride parades, which I realized fairly young, I also realized that there were counter protesters with hostile religious signs. So, so it, it was a complicated um, situation. Sounds very complicated. Based on my understanding, New York City has been a tremendous center of activism and organization, especially mm -hmm. around the queer community. 
Mm-hmm. What has your experience been like in New York City? So I think that was true. But again, until I was um, about 16, 15, 16, mm-hmm. um, my interactions with that community were somewhat limited. So uh, I kind of figured out my own situation when I was maybe 12 or so, 11, 12, 13. Um, And I was pretty clear that I liked both boys and girls. And in my world at that point, there were not a lot of, you know, genderqueer or non-binary identified people. And, And I don't remember any particular sexual awakening having to do with trans people. So for me, I was basically dealing with attractions to cisgender boys and girls. I mean, that's the age I was, that's the age we all were. Um, So that happened. Um, Again, if I went for say a stroll in Greenwich Village, I would walk past gay bars. Uh, I would walk past the occasional lesbian bar. I would walk past stores that were largely sex shops that were aimed overwhelmingly at gay men. I mean, again, maybe bisexual men went to them, I, I don't know. So um, in my youngest years, um, I was aware of the commerce more than I was in a way of the community. I was aware that there were places to go and things to do that were targeted this particular set of people. And I, you know, I had something of a draw to them. I was curious about them. I would go and occasionally hang out in some of the stores or go and kind of look at the bars. Uh, and and um, I'm sure some of that was with some sense of identification, but also it was such a curiosity because again, back then, even in New York, I mean, I can't imagine how it was in small towns around the country, but even in New York, there were quite segregated neighborhoods where these sorts of things existed. So. If I went five blocks the other direction out of Greenwich Village, there was not a gay thing to be seen or a lesbian thing to be seen. Um, so that was sort of how I first connected to the community was literally seeing its stores and its bars and, and its restaurants and so on and seeing people at them. Um, my coming out was rather private initially in the sense that it was about experiencing feeling, feelings and realizing what was happening but I did not immediately try to connect up with other people or with the larger community. It wasn't really until I was 16 and had come out to my parents and that had not gone well, that I started trying to go to events and and connect up with other people. Uh, And really I I was just looking for people I could sort of be around in a, broadly speaking, a safe way. It is interesting, though, that the Lesbian and Gay Community Center, which is what it was called then, I don't know if it's got quite the same name now, was half a block from my father's apartment. And so by the time I came out, I was split living. My parents lived three blocks from each other, so it was a very easy split live. But it is also true that because of where in town they lived, um, the the center was right there. So it was very easy for me to to go to things. but I also realized pretty quickly at that point that I was like by far the youngest person in the room at most of those events. Um, I never did quite figure out where the, the LGBT teens were while I still was one. So my connections to the community were, you know, I'd go to a general event and be the youngest person in the room. I wouldn't really make friends, but I would feel good about being there. 
I did start marching in and watching pride marches when I was fairly young. Um, and it was always, for me, what was really special was seeing people who I knew at them. Uh, and so I would say pretty much every year I would see someone I knew at some point and that would be really meaningful. Um, friends, adults that were friends of my parents, occasionally teachers. Um, one of my teachers actually marched with a paper bag over his head. That was how dangerous it was to be a gay teacher in those days. Um, and I remember that. But, um, but so um, I then sort of mostly connected with a handful of other people at my high school who were something other than straight. Um, I, I think there were a few gay men. There undoubtedly were some bisexual people. Um, I, I, there were a couple of lesbians, not that many. Uh, don't remember if there were really bi women, but um, so my first connection to, to people in the community that was meaningful was really to people I already knew in my own school who were out already or kind of on the way out or who weren't formally out, but we knew that kind of thing. Are you still connected to your community back in New York City? So my community is not very much there anymore. People kind of scattered. Um, some of my high school friends I am now friends with on Facebook, um, which, which is pretty good. I'm not exceptionally close to most of the LGBT people I knew in high school. There's, there's one person who I actually have not inquired about her sexuality or gender identity. I think she probably goes by she, but um, I, I have my suspicions about her. Um, most of my high school friends who I'm still friends with are, you know, they, as they would have said back then, straight but not narrow. So I am publicly and flagrantly out and anyone who's friends with me on Facebook obviously has no trouble with that. Um, um, I am still friends with um, a variety of queer people from college and from my early Boston life right after college. So uh, we can jump around and sort of go back to this stuff. When I moved to Boston, I moved there with a pretty strong bi identity and I connected uh, pretty quickly with the bi community in Boston. And then because I was actually doing some writing about bisexuality, I also connected to some bi communities in places like Seattle and New York and Los Angeles and so on. So I still have quite a variety of uh, bi friends from my past. Um, so those people are still in my life and a shocking number of my exes, both male and female are still in my life. Most of them are Facebook friends. Some of them are friends in other ways, but so, so I, I, I have managed to keep quite a bit of connection with queer people, my own age through the decades. Um, I have to say that, um, a number of the older gay and bi men I knew are dead. They died of AIDS a long time ago. So there is a generation that's missing that's the generation ahead of me. Um, so some of them were in my life for a little while. I, and a handful of my college colleagues, people from my era who were gay men, um, 
I was in college in the late 80s, and sadly, a number of them actually also have died of AIDS. I'm very sorry for the loss of your friends. Thank you. Do you perceive a difference between the general queer community and possibly the bi community within it, the queer community? So it has been years since I've been quite engaged with the bi community in any really social ways. When we moved to Colorado Springs, what was clear to me was that I would undoubtedly meet um, a couple of bi people, and I have, um, but also it, it was clear to me quickly that I would not be socially engaging with bi-identified people here sort of strictly as a community. Um, because the one time I actually, uh, I, I, I don't remember how long ago this was, but it was long ago. It was probably, you know, 2004, 2005. I think I actually put an ad in the Independent, the Colorado Springs Independent, and basically saying, you know, bisexual woman, um, you know, seeking some bisexual friends. I mean, I was already in my marriage. You know, it's a monogamous marriage. I wasn't looking for sex partners. I'm not judging non-monogamy. I've done that in my distant past and all. But I just was looking for some bi people to socialize with, and I was curious what, what was here in Colorado Springs. And immediately, the, you know, I got a bunch of really sort of skeevy, sketchy responses from, you know, people who wanted to have threesomes, and that was kind of it. And I mean, that's fine. I don't judge them, but that wasn't what I was looking for. So, so it has been literally decades since I have been connected in any meaningful way with bisexual communities. I would say when I was, they were, uh, this is so long ago that they were really struggling with how to relate to lesbian and gay communities, um, kind of where they fell under the queer community, which at that time was actually kind of a new phenomenon. So to do a little bit of history, um, the word queer really, um, in, in my understanding and experience, was starting to get reclaimed at the very end of the 80s and early in the 90s. So Queer Nation starts around 91, I think. Um, and it very much was a political identity at the time. It also was a way of abbreviating all the terminology. It, I mean, it, it was this really polyvalent term. And, and you know, I think my experience of it in your generation is that it, it, it is often kind of a descriptive umbrella term, which is fine. I mean, it served as that in some part. Um, but back when we were all starting to use it in a reclaimed way, because, you know, queer was an insult for decades before it was ever something we said with pride. Um, and so the things we meant by it in some ways feel to me a little more complicated than how I think I hear it used now, which is largely descriptive. Um, but so the bi community was really invested in using the term bisexual uh, or the term bi. It was a huge big deal. Uh, and in the writing that we were all doing for our community in those days, and some of this was coming out of kind of sex liberationist movements. Some of this was coming out of bisexual feminism. It was coming from a range of places. Um, but uh, there, it, it, was a, it was sort of a painfully self-aware community because what we were aware of at the time was that there was a lot of judgment of bisexuality and a lot of stereotyping, and it came from 
gay men and lesbians and heterosexual people. And so I think we had a little bit of a sense of being embattled. Um, and so we were trying to understand, you know, obviously we are people who have the potential to fall in love with people outside of certain limits and to be sexually attracted to them and to have sex with them and whatever that all means. Um, but it, it, it wasn't, it, it, in looking back, it's not clear to me that we had a, a, a very well-defined politics. So it was very common for there to be a bi contingent marching in pride parades. Um, in general, pride parade organizers didn't cause any problem. Sometimes people would applaud us, but sometimes people would jeer us. So uh, it, it was sort of a strange community to be a, a part of, or sub-community to be a part of, in the sense that, you know, we certainly knew what we had in common, but it's not clear to me that we had a strong sense of something we stood for that was very different from the larger lesbian gay population. Um, and certainly, um, I, I would be remiss if I did not say that there was quite a lot of sexism in the white gay male communities at the time. There wasn't still is a lot of racism in those communities, and we can talk about that or not. Uh, but people rarely now talk about the sexism of what those communities were like. And so bisexual men were not looked upon very well by those gay men who felt uh, particularly uh, uncomfortable with women. So obviously there was all of that. Uh, but the other thing that I think is worth recognizing is that before AIDS, there wasn't very much of a lesbian and gay community that was all that, um, uh, all that well bonded or, or all that intersecting. Um, you know, uh, the neighborhoods, in some places like San Francisco, gay and lesbian neighborhoods were not even in the same place. The Castro was a gay neighborhood. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the lesbian neighborhood and I'm forgetting it. I haven't been there in a really long time. But so, so before AIDS, as these cultural things were building up, and in the very earliest days of the bi community in the very late 70s and early 80s, um, there were these sort of little pockets. There, were, there was where the men hung out and there'd be some women there and there was where the women hung out and there would not be a lot of men there. And, and the bi folks kind of had our own space. So it, it's quite different from what I perceive to be common now. And also in places like New York and Boston that had large enough communities, it really was possible for there to be some of this segregation. In Colorado Springs, I don't think there, there has ever been that much segregation because the community's never been big enough and it's always been embattled. There's so much homophobia here and, and biphobia secondarily that um, there's never been the luxury of having separate little zones as I have experienced it. Before we continue, I just wanna make sure I'm using the correct terminology. Are you comfortable with me using the word queer? Absolutely. Okay, thank you. Sure. Um, Assuming you're using it in the descriptive sense. In the descriptive sense as an overarching umbrella yep. term for yep. anyone who is outside of the heteronormative binary. Yep, absolutely. Um, 
And um, thank you for explaining that. And yes, that's it's a completely fine descriptive term to use. Okay, thank you. You mentioned um, specifically the Colorado Springs community and having lived in Boston. I'm curious what how you decided so to- sorry, I'm, I have, I'm getting a call. I'm just gonna turn that off. Take your time. Okay, I apologize. I had failed. I had failed to turn down the ringer on my home phone. So it, that is off now and that will not happen again. Okay, go on. A very human error, all good. Yep. You mentioned Boston and Colorado Springs. I'm curious mm -hmm. where in your life you've lived. Sure, so I grew up in New York City and was there until I went to college um, at age 18. Um, I went to college at Oberlin College in Oberlin, Ohio. Oberlin is a school in some ways like CC. It does not have a block plan. It does have a music conservatory, but it's a similar selective liberal arts college. Um, so I was in rural, well, not rural, small town Ohio for four years. Uh, I then moved immediately to Boston upon graduating. I think I spent one last summer in New York City and then moved to Boston. Uh, I was in Boston from fall of 1988, so I graduated in spring of 88, and I was in Boston from fall of 88 to summer of 2001, so I spent my entire young adult life there um, doing a variety of things. Um, uh, while I was in Boston, I got married, and I married someone who's now a CC college professor, and in 2001, she got, she had just finished up her uh, doctorate and got a postdoc. And it, it's very helpful for natural science professors to have a postdoc in order to get hired at a good school. So we moved to Iowa for two years uh, and uh, she did a postdoc at the University of Iowa. We lived in a small town called Grinnell, which also had uh, a selective liberal arts college where I also taught. Um, and after two years of that, we moved out here in summer of 2003, and I have lived here since then. So I am rapidly approaching um, being in the, you know, Colorado Springs being the place I have lived the longest in my life. In another couple of years, that will be true, which is still strange. It is interesting where we find our homes. It is. Um, what was the process like of finding a home in Colorado Springs? Um, well, so we had um, a, a couple of, Phoebe is my spouse, and a couple of Phoebe's friends lived in the Denver area, still do, and so one of them actually found us a rental before we ever got out here. So we knew that we wanted to at least um, try to live close to campus to make life easy, and actually that is how it wound up. So we, um, I don't know if they're still around, but there used to be a um, property management company called uh, Sunflower Management that rented to college students and the occasional um, temporary professor. We rented from them. And again, a friend found us the place. Um, and personally, we thought they were a really, really terrible property management company. And so we actually broke our lease and bought a house two blocks from campus that fall, so November of 2003. So we were kind of in the middle of the first semester when things just were kind of unworkable. 
So finding the place was not that bad. One of the things that um, really helped, and I'm sorry that I don't remember how this played out, but there is a lesbian realtor in Colorado Springs who's very involved in democratic activism and the LG and the queer community here. Um, and we were put in contact with her by, I don't know who, probably some lesbian or gay professor at the college. And when it was time for us to unload on the rental and buy a house, we actually had her, we hired her as our realtor. So uh, we, I believe, moved into a house that a friend of hers, I think a lesbian friend, I'm not sure, was selling. So, you know, in this funny way, uh, we live in this house that might have some queer history, even though I can also tell you the house we moved into used to have the football team at CC living here back when we had a football team. So before we ever moved out here, um, the football team used to live here. And uh, uh, on alumni weekends, uh, they still come and visit us, which is funny. Oh. But, uh, but so the move out here in general, I mean, the sort of the, the, the logistics of the move were not that bad, but we were terrified to move out here because even though, you know, the Phoebe's teaching position looked pretty good, the year before we moved out, there had been a pride center and it had been torched in an act of arson and burned to the ground. No one had been injured in that, but that was pretty terrifying. And also, that same year, um, a woman who'd been a lesbian activist out here had been murdered um, right near campus, I think somewhere near Cache La Poudre. And the thing is, I don't know for sure that that was a hate crime. There wasn't very much information about it. But, you know, after you grow up in New York City and live for, you know, more than 10 years in Boston, which certainly has neighborhoods that were homophobic, but also, you know, I generally lived in neighborhoods where I felt fairly safe um about that um you know and and during my time in college and during my time in 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 the small college town in iowa you know um we were there weren't queer communities exactly but we connected up with you know queer faculty and we could have a quiet but relatively safe feeling life so to move out here was actually quite frightening um, and I think we were also aware that this was not very long after um, Amendment 2 had been overturned. And so we knew that Colorado Springs had been the community where uh, the Amendment 2 planning had all happened. I think it was associated mostly either with First Pres or with the Village 7 Presbyterian Church. So these were churches that were kind of in some sense identified as mainline, but they really had conservative evangelical homophobes in them. So we knew that we were coming out here literally seven years after Amendment 2 was overturned, and we were a little nervous. And I will say that um, we immediately kind of tried to make connections and make friendships at the college. Um, and some of those were with uh, queer people, but a lot of them were just with open-minded heterosexual people who understood that, that their good deed of activism for the day was just to be good welcoming friends to us. So, so my biggest shout out here uh, in Colorado Springs, even though I'm grateful for our queer friends here, I'm really exceptionally grateful for our straight friends here because they are the large majority of our friends. 
That's really interesting. Yep. It might be the first place I've lived for more than a brief period where that was true. You know, I, both the college I went to and the college I later taught at, at Grinnell, both had pretty substantive queer communities. Um, I mean, strong student bodies, uh, substantial numbers of faculty. So this is probably the first place I've lived since my childhood in New York where the majority of my friends were heterosexual. Um, but that's fine, you know, as long as they are truly non-judgmental, welcoming and loving, I'm good with that. You mentioned um, Amendment 2, mm -hmm. which was based on my understanding an amendment to the Colorado State Constitution. Mm -hmm. And would you, and I know that Colorado Springs itself has a really high percentage of evangelical Christians. Mm -hmm. Would you say that the community here in Colorado Springs fosters a bit more heightened awareness of what it means to come out as queer or to live openly as a queer person? So that's a great question. And I don't know that I can answer it exactly on the terms that you have, have provided, because I still think that there are many places in Colorado and beyond Colorado where coming out is still really an active moment. I mean, I, I, do, I know that in popular culture, we, we are sort of given to think that that is less true now than it used to be. But I still think there, you know, some, some poor queer kid coming out in Brush, Colorado, I mean, they're still going to go through all the struggles. Um, you know, um, someone going to Mesa College and coming out there might have some struggles. But having said that, for me, because I am a very urban person by background, you know, with New York and Boston being where I spent most of my young life, um, I tend to think in terms of cities. And so for me, um, it, had I been in um, Boulder or Denver, I, I don't think, you know, again, I, undoubtedly there are homophobic people there, but I do think there also are communities there that are more well-grounded and better resourced and there are simply more upper middle class and upper class liberals in places like that that support those communities. So for example, I when I first heard about Drag Brunch in Denver, um, I, I don't remember what restaurant it's at, but um, on, on Sunday, a bunch of drag queens put on roller skates and sing and dance and, you know, deliver your food. Um, it was years before I knew anyone who had gone to drag brunch other than straight people. And that's just sort of how integrated things were in Denver, that, that there was a community, definitely, and there were stores and restaurants and bars and neighborhoods, but they, they weren't very isolated or, or sealed off or anything like that. Um, what I think is harder in Colorado Springs is, I mean, God, I would hate to have grown up here. Hate, hate, hate. I would hate to have come out here. I think it would have been really hard, especially a couple of decades ago, because um, even though I think the neighborhood right around CC is not, um, is not as conservative as some of these other neighborhoods, you know, there really is um, 
a, a CC neighborhood bubble effect in that there are three zip codes that have more liberals in them than almost anywhere else in Colorado Springs and CC's in one of those zip codes. Um, and, you know, to, to grow up in, uh, in Briargate or in Southeast uh, K-Town or some of those neighborhoods that are either quite poor and racially mixed and as far as I can tell, religiously conservative, though I'm not as sure, or those really wealthy white evangelical Christian neighborhoods on the north side, that, I mean, that just would be really hard. You can't even have a Biden yard sign in those neighborhoods, let alone be out. So, you know, we have, we have only lived right near the college since we moved here because we think that those are neighborhoods that would not feel very safe to live in. I mean, it's not that those neighborhoods have no liberals or progressives in them, but they don't have very many. And, and the overwhelming feel of those neighborhoods is very conservative. I also know that there is a huge problem with, um, with young queer people here around being thrown out of their homes, around suicidality, around drug use. That's not something where I track data, so I can't give you numbers, but um, I remember a few years ago, um, I was connected to a church where one of my friends was a, um, a guy who um, taught in D20. Um, lovely, lovely guy. D D20 is sort of ground zero for conservative homophobia for youth from what I can see. I mean, I think there are some other districts that are problematic, but because, because focus on the family and new life are right there, you know, my understanding is that that's a really tough neighborhood. And, and this friend of mine was sort of reporting on Facebook about all the the youth suicides around town, and we don't know how many of them had to do with um, homophobia, but I'm guessing some to most. So all of that means that this is a tough place to come into a sense of oneself as a queer person. I think to move here as a queer adult and to uh, be able to shape one's own life and where one goes and who one hangs out with um, has not been as hard as I thought it would be. Um, if, I were, if I were very sort of inclined towards separatism and really wanted only to be around queer people, I'd be pretty unhappy here. But again, that's not my personality or my temperament. Um, I will say that um, many of the churches I've attended have had lesbian pastors or ministers, and that's been really lovely. I don't, it's not something I need, but it, it's a nice reminder that even in this religiously conservative area, there is wonderful, strong, progressive religion and queer people are involved in it. So that's great. Um, but, um, but yes, I, there are very few neighborhoods in town I won't go into at all, but there definitely are neighborhoods in town I would not go into with Phoebe and do very much in the way of hand-holding or any public display of affection. And there's a lot of those neighborhoods. But because people are so clueless, they often wonder if we're sisters or something and it doesn't really come up. And that's funny and silly and a little sad, but we, we have actually faced almost no direct discrimination. The, the one thing that happened right when we moved to town was that we walked into uh, a, an auto insurance 
store. I mean, store is sort of a strange word. It was someone's little kind of private shop. We walked in, we were looking for car insurance. We said we're a couple, they stared at us, their mouth dropped, we turned around and left. And then everything we needed, we got through Colorado College. So, you know, they had suggestions for suppliers for everything we needed. CC, even at the time, was not particularly homophobic. Um, and we could register as domestic partners. So we wound up getting everything we needed and we have had almost no trouble like that since we got here. But I, I think there still is a general feel in the town and it varies by neighborhood, but you, you kind of have to be careful how out you are and where and who's around you. Yeah. We also, in our little bit of background research, understand that you write music. I do. Spiritual music. I do. Do you mind speaking about it? We really liked what we saw when we did our looking. No, I'm happy to talk about that. So um, I, I wrote my actual first song when I was 12. It was terrible. It was just the most bad pop song you can imagine. But I've loved music my whole life. My father was a songwriter, as I said before, for a while before he did other things and he taught me to write songs. Um, and then you know, even though I grew up a secular person, I, I sort of, I had, I had a sense that there was something in spirituality or religion that would be meaningful and useful to me. And so my favorite kind of joke about this is when I was a teenager and my friends were sneaking out to get high, I was sneaking out to try worship services of different sorts. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to bother for the moment with the long story there. I, I spent about 30 years with the Unitarian Universalists. I'm now a member of a very progressive United Church of Christ Church. Um, I'm not particularly doctrinal or doctrinaire, and I draw my religious uh, and spiritual inspiration from the UUs, the Quakers, the Buddhists, progressive Christians, a lot of places, you know. Uh, but having said that, um, I, I guess in college, I started writing some loosely religious music. So I wrote, I wrote a song for the holy union of a same-sex couple who were friends of mine, and I knew they were both Christian, liberal Christian. So the word God was in that. Um, and I, I then wrote, uh, I then found myself inspired to write some stuff that was kind of spiritual without being tied to any one religion. And that this sort of just percolated along in my, in my teens and twenties. Um, the, the other thing that was really meaningful for me around my um, uh, religious music life was in high school, um, I was the co-founder of my high school's musical theater repertory club. So we had a wonderful drama club run by teachers, of course, but no one really wanted to do a musical theater club. So a bunch of us just said, what the heck, we're gonna do this and our parents will be our chaperones. And we're, you know, anyway, it's a, it's a magnificent group. It's still in existence. Um, in fact, if do you two know who Lin-Manuel Miranda is? Yes. He went to my high school and he wrote his first musical uh, while working with a club I co-founded. Oh, wonderful. He doesn't know who I am, but I love the story. Anyway, so the first musical we put on was Godspell. 
And I was very moved by gospel. I was unaccountably moved by it, but, you know, because as of age 15, when this happened, my experience with Christianity was that it was strange and homophobic. I mean, I was a secular Jew and I almost only ever saw Christians when they were protesting pride things. But there was something about Godspell, about the sense of community to it, about how beautiful the music was that really moved me and stuck with me. And I realized that, that I had kind of a yearning to encounter religious music that was not doctrinal, that I wouldn't have to argue with, but that could be part of my own spiritual life in some way. Now, these days, there's a lot of that out there. But when I was thinking about this in the 90s, there really wasn't. So I said, fuck it, I'm going to start writing some, uh, you know, uh, and, and that hasn't stopped. And, and if anything, it has um, sort of gone on. So I wrote my first couple of hymns for a hymn contest in 1999. And one of them was a runner up, which is astonishing. But there you go. All three hymns that I sent into the contest were published, which is also astonishing. And, and since then, my songwriting life has sort of veered more and more toward stuff that was kind of a mix of social justice music and spiritual music. And so that happened. And then you know, I occasionally wrote a hymn. I, I actually, I'm, I'm looking at a hymnal right now that I have a hymn in, which is funny. It's a pagan hymn. Uh, but, um, but then um, I kept doing productions of Godspell through my life. I just love it. And I did a production right after my wife and I started dating. Uh, I was the music director. She was in the cast. And another friend of ours in the cast who has stayed a friend of mine since 1997 now, um, and she is now, she's a lesbian and she's a pastor in Vermont. Um, in maybe February of 2019, she emailed me and said, Amanda, the hymn society in the US and Canada is doing an LGBTQ hymnal. They are collecting mm -hmm. hymns about the, the queer experience and by and for queer people. Why don't you submit some stuff? Um, and I'm like, what the hell? So there was a two month gap between when I became aware of the contest and the deadline for submissions. In that time, I wrote the lyrics for, wrote the music for, and got engraved 25 hymns. So I just exploded. I don't know where it came from, but it just was burbling out. I sent all 25 in. They actually published two of them in the hymnal. And since then, I, even though um, a lot of what I write now is not necessarily explicitly queer. So those hymns were all, that set of 25 hymns were very much for queer people. So there, one of them is a hymn called, Oh Jesus Had Two Fathers. And it's specifically about the idea that both God and Joseph are Jesus's dads and both Mary and the spirit are Jesus's moms. And it's a lullaby for kids of same sex couples. One of the things they published was called Queerly Beloved, which is a, a gathering worship song for like a queer worship setting. Um, there's a wonderful piece called God the Soaring Eagle about all the genders and agenders of God. So I really got into it and, and found it to be meaningful and playful and challenging in the best ways and fun. And since then, I've just kept writing and kept writing. 
I haven't written a lot more queer stuff specifically. I've written a whole bunch of stuff in response to COVID. Um, and I've written um, specifically, uh, a, I still sort of uh, write some music for non-Christian, like Unitarian Universalist settings, and I still write some stuff that's more biblically inspired. And so it would be, I think, exceptionally of interest to Christians, progressive Christians. But um, so I have now, I have a website that has uh, free music on it. Anyone can go to it, get the stuff. Uh, the website is queersacredmusic.com. I, I think I'm upwards of 60 hymns. I think by the end of this year, depending on how things go, I might be close to 100 or at least over 80. I mean, I just wrote one yesterday. So um, it, it has been an amazing thing and it's not ever been my profession. I mean, when I was a young adult in, in Boston, I did occasionally um, play in the subways for money. But you know, other than that and playing in a couple of gay bars, I, I have not really been much of a professional musician. I love music too much to try to make a living at it. So I love that I have a professional job at Colorado College that has nothing to do with music, but that allows me to write music, uh, get it engraved, get it recorded, and make it available for free for anyone who wants it. And it is true that even though a lot of this stuff is not sort of specifically queer, a lot of the stuff I'm doing these days is very much based on my understanding of what is most important about spirituality, which has a lot less to do with what religion you belong to or what you call yourself or what doctrines you believe, and a lot more to do with living an ethical, kind, compassionate, loving, and humble life. I'm not good at any of those things, but I try. So for me, the hymn writing and the songwriting is, it's a gift to the world, it's a way of doing ministry, um, and, and it's, it's, also, it's, it's also aspirational for me. I write the music I need to hear to try to keep growing as a human being and to try to keep being a better human being. And I think that this sort of centrality of, of ethics as part of my spirituality has a lot to do with my queerness, even when a given hymn has nothing to do with my queerness. So, you know, um, I have hymns that are, I have communion hymns that aren't especially queer. I do have one queer communion hymn. Uh, we are setting the rainbow table. But, um, but for me, my spirituality is really interwoven with ethics. And I know that that has to do with the fact that I grew up absolutely convinced that there was something immoral about queerness. I think that because I grew up so secular, when people said God hates you or you're an abomination to God, it's not that that didn't hurt. I mean, of course it hurt. But, but for me, I think the thing that really got under my skin and harmed me was the idea that homosexuality and bisexuality were in some way immoral. And so I could say a lot about that. I'm, I'm not going to unless we come back to it. But so I think what has happened in my preaching life, in my music life, in my going to seminary and thinking of being a minister, which didn't pan out. But in, in all of the places that religion has shown up in my life, it, it is grounded in, you know, religious visions. It is grounded in spirituality. It is, is grounded to some extent in prayer and things like that. But it's very grounded in ethics. And I think I have spent an awful lot of my life trying to prove to myself that I'm an ethical person. And I'm sure that that has a lot to do with internalized homophobia, which is fascinating and sad but you know it 
I've put it to good use, so that's okay. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this because it's really interesting. All the things you've mentioned about religion and secularism and faith and specifically ethics. I'm mm -hmm. actually, I'm a religion major. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but I'm really, I'm curious if, you've perceived any specific receptions either um, in all the communities you've worked in or senior music welcomed in or specifically in Colorado Springs um, what the reception has been to faith-based queer music or just specifically um, having queer communities in a faith structure because if it's different when there's that blending of mm -hmm. a queer identity and faith. So this has been really fascinating. And there's sort of, there's the in Colorado Springs part of the story and the out of Colorado Springs part of the story. And I'd actually like to start briefly outside Colorado Springs and say that I picked the URL of my music site very intentionally so that no one would use my music who was unwilling to interact with that URL. Having said that, my music has been, the music I've written over the past two years has been performed all over the country, definitely in South Africa, possibly also in Wales in the, Uni in the United Kingdom. So, um, and, and by people who are part of mainline and liberal Christianity, but you know, there, there are some Baptists who've used it. There are Methodists who've used it. So, so I will say that whatever else is going on, mainline religion that is not strictly evangelical is becoming, I think, more open-minded about where it obtains its resources in general. And if it likes them, it will use them, whatever else is true. So that's, and I could say a lot more about that, but I won't. In Colorado Springs, um, my experiences with religion have been really complicated because I came here as a really serious and dedicated Unitarian Universalist. I found the UUs in college. Um, and when I first moved to Boston, I worked for the Unitarian Universalist Association headquarters. This is a liberal offshoot of Christianity that is not doctrinal and draws on various religious traditions and kind of intends to be a spiritual, ethical, and social justice-based kind of path in which people with different perspectives and different practices live and walk together, um, sharing a commitment to uh, human and planetary well-being, even when they don't believe the same things. Now, that is UUism at its best self. What I found when I came out here was that the Unitarian Universalism out here, and again, I first really did UUism in Boston, where I was part of large churches, where I composed choral music for the churches, where I sang in huge UU choirs directed by semi-famous people. Um, and in Boston, which is where that movement started, there is quite a bit of space for UU Christians and for people who have 
who have some tie to Christianity but are not doctrinal, you really can be a part of UUism in places like Boston and probably San Francisco and Chicago and New York, and there's kind of space for you. What I learned when I moved out here was that the UU churches in Colorado Springs, and this is not surprising to me, um, there were two things about them that were striking. One, they were fiercely pro-queer inclusion, even though they were almost exclusively heterosexual. So I noticed that immediately. They were taking a very clear stand against homophobia in Colorado Springs. That was wonderful. And, and I still cherish that about them. The other thing I noticed is that they were deeply and profoundly uncomfortable with Christianity at all. So they did a Christmas service that, you know, involved the nativity story, but it certainly didn't talk about God. They would do an Easter service that was all about the flowers in the spring. And I mean, again, I'm not trying to put this down, but, but because there was such an embattled sensibility among progressives out here, and to some extent there still is, though that's better, but what it meant was that the U churches were places where if one had some draw to Christianity, however non-doctrinal and however loose, it wasn't, it, it was a much safer place for me to be queer than it was a place for me to be open about my sense of draw to Christianity, which was fascinating. Um, so I attend, I've, I've been to both of the UU churches in town. I've been members of both of them at different times. I've done all sorts of leadership in them. And eventually for a variety of reasons, I left both. Um, and I did bring my music to them. I brought some of my music to them, but again, I could kind of tell which music they'd be willing to hear and which music they wouldn't be willing to hear. So I was a bit closeted about all this with them. Most recently, I've joined, again, a progressive Christian church, which is very low doctrine. I mean, it, 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 is, it, it draws on the Bible, but it, it, there's very little in the way of creeds there, and it's very built around kind of the vision of, that Jesus had about what I usually call love's domain. I mean, it's traditionally called the kingdom of God, but kingdom is not a great term in our era. Um, being part of that church is part of what spurred some of my writing, and I actually became informally the composer in residence at this church. So I'd bring them some of my queer stuff, but I'd bring them some of my liberal Christian stuff. It was very welcomed. My queerness was very welcomed. My pastor's a lesbian. So in the church I'm in now, the idea of, of you know, uh, music that exists at the intersection of queerness and spirituality is really welcomed and cherished. And I'm so grateful that I have had this opportunity. And I'm so sad that, um, that because of who the UUs are in Colorado Springs, and they're magnificent people, and I'm still proud to call many of them friends in my personal life, but I could not actually bring my queer music to them very much. It just, it was not quite the right fit. So I'm sad about that, um, but um, I'm, I'm glad that I do have opportunities to write things for people who want them. And um, I, I'm not sure how else to say it. I, I, I think, I think that most of the evangelical churches in town would be absolutely horrified if they 
were aware that there is a congregation in town that not only flies the Black Lives Matter flag, not only flies a pride flag, not only flies a trans pride flag, but has a queer composer in residence writing sacred music. I think they'd be horrified and that just makes me laugh. <laughs> we love all those things. I hope I've picked up on this correctly, but something I've heard over this time we've been speaking is that some of the communities you found yourself drawn to here in Colorado Springs has been comprised of a lot of non-queer people. Mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you could speak on that, like how you are building your community here in Colorado. Sure. So, um, so what really happened when we came out here, and I, I think all of this really got kind of kicked into gear by our initial time here, is that we made decisions about where we were gonna look for friendships and community that had more to do with Colorado College as a place where we expected to find our friends and also the first Unitarian Universalist Church that we went to in town, All Souls, which is a block from CC. We figured that to a large extent, our friendships were gonna come from those places. It isn't that we never went to the underground. It isn't that we didn't go to Pride. I mean, we did. We went on the marches. We went and visited with all the, you know, the different tables that people had set up at the festival. Um, you know, we occasionally would go to uh, a non-Pride weekend event of some sort that was being held at Club Q or the underground or whatever. But I think also the timing of our move out here. So when, when we came out here, I was close to 40 and Phoebe was in her early 30s and she was really just starting a big professional career as a college professor. And I was still a little bit casting around for what I was gonna do, but I, I, I had just finished up an academic doctorate, so I thought I might be a professor. Um, and so we, if we had come out here as truly properly young adults, you know, 21, 25, whatever, this might have been different and it might have been really important for us to make a primary commitment to finding queer community. But as it was, we came out here and said, where are we likely to find any community that makes sense to us? And I think this is something that happens to some people as they get older. I don't know if this is sort of sociologically generalizable. My doctorate's in sociology, so I can say that. But so this may not happen, for example, to the two of you or to other people. But in our experience, as we got older, we had less of a commitment to our primary social community being an explicitly queer one and more of a commitment to building community where we were gonna find ourselves anyway. Um, that is a luxury that I'm not really sure I entirely had as a young adult, which is why when I moved to Boston, I, I sought out the bi community immediately and the first, um, the first UU church that I went to in Boston for a long time was known in Boston as the gay church. It had a lesbian pastor. It had dozens and dozens and dozens of gay men. It had 
quite a few lesbians. It, you know, I, it had some bi people. So at that, at that point in my life, that really was super important. And hanging around the geographical community was super important. But when we came out here, you know, I'm, I'm already, so I was already married. I wasn't looking for partners. Um, it was important to me to, to make friends in the places I was going to be so that those would be humane places for me. So that really meant that I made a decision that I'm sure has political implications, but it didn't feel at the time like a political decision. It felt like what would happen was I would try to make friends at Colorado College. I sure hoped some of them would be queer. In point of fact, some of them are, which is great. Um, I immediately connected with queer people at CC, so it was a priority to, to you know, make those connections. But over the years, what has sort of happened is, even though some of those people are still among my better friends at the college, I made friends with new people who came in who were younger than me and kind of arrived later, and most of them were straight, but absolutely inclusive and welcoming and not homophobic or anything. Um, and in fact, they were sort of so not homophobic that my sexuality was hardly of interest, except to the extent that they did want to know who my partner was so they could use the correct name for them. You know, it, it, it's very, very, it, it is almost the opposite of my childhood or my young adulthood, where my queerness was a huge part of my identity. And it isn't that it's not part of my identity, but now, um, when I think about who I want to spend my time around, I want to spend my time around people who nourish me and enjoy me, who share things with me, who laugh and cry with me, people who I can support, people who can support me, uh, people who can recommend good books, you know, that kind of thing. And as it has turned out in my life, a surprising number of them have turned out to be non-queer. Um, you know, and I suppose if I'd known that this was going to happen 20 years ago, I might have been either appalled or sad, but, you know, I have good people in my life. And it, it, it's not, I, I would not want to say that this is about some bizarre equivalent of colorblindness. Colorblindness is bullshit, by the way. Racism 101, there is no such thing as colorblindness. There's no such thing as gender blindness. There's no such thing as sexuality blindness, exactly. But I do, I do seem to have become part of a mixed and complex community where we all love each other and we are a variety of sexualities. And, you know, it is still true that I have an awful, awful lot of queer Facebook friends from earlier parts of my life. And I am friends with many of my former female partners and one of my former male partners. Um, but... Um, you know, so it, it's not as though my life is not rich in queerness. It re really, really is in many ways. Um, but my Colorado Springs life, other than church, is not that queer. And, the, and even my church is mostly straight, but the, the pastor's a lesbian. The clerk of the congregation, whatever his title, of executive council, is a trans man of color. So... It's not even that there's a large number of queer people at my congregation. It's that the ones who are there are quite prominent and loud and visible and out and proud and everyone loves them. So, 
so it's strange that that my life my local life is not queerer um but i also think um and and i i may have said this when i was speaking to your class when i was a young person my activism consisted of going to marches getting arrested doing civil disobedience doing protests you know writing letters to the editor um i i was a pretty out loud proud angry visible person in in my younger years um when we moved to colorado springs the homophobia level was such that phoebe and i sort of looked at each other and said if we just can survive and thrive here if we can live here happily that might be enough activism for us and that's going to sound really strange but I think when we first got out here, and you know, any protest, we were at it, you know, when, uh, when the Westboro Baptist Church came and protested Palmer High School for having a gay-straight alliance, we were at that protest, as were 2,000 other queer people. There were 12 of them. They didn't last very long. More recently, um, when Westboro Baptist came and protested at Oh, I don't remember the name of the school. It's in Manitou. I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly where it is. But, but I was at that protest. You know, I don't get arrested anymore because I have arthritic knees and I have to be a little careful about letting myself get dragged around. But morally, I would. I mean, if, if I also have to say COVID has made it a little scarier for me to attend protests. And I'm sorry, that probably sounds really weenie, but... Um, you know, minus COVID, I'd, I'd probably be, no, I'd certainly be out protesting with the BLM folks. Um, and, you know, were there more specifically queer activism going on in town, I'd be at that. So it's not that I've changed my values or my passion, but one, one sort of ages and settles into a different kind of life. So these days, my my social life is incidentally queer and my queer activism has a lot to do with writing sacred music. That straight people sing knowing that I'm queer, which is actually kind of cool. I do love that. So what are, else can I tell you? Are you noticing a large divide between the younger and older generation of queer people in Colorado Springs? So um, I can only answer that insofar as I am a little bit mindful of some of what is happening with queer students at Colorado College. So I just, I cannot claim that I have very much knowledge about queer teens in town. I have not I certainly give money to Inside Out, but I have not, for example, volunteered with them or anything. So I, I'm not particularly connected to, to queer teens in town. Um, when I um, have occasions to interact with QCC or Equal, or I'm sorry, I don't even remember what groups there are these days. You know, it's been a couple of years, but you know, when I have the opportunity to interact with, with queer college students, and that has almost exclusively happened at CC. Um, well, I did teach briefly at UCCS a while ago, and I met a couple of queer students there, but that was a hard place to be queer then, and they were pretty closeted. So anyway, I do think that there are generational divides. I think that there are always generational divides, because I think 
the best way I can explain this, and again, this is a little sociological, is that um, different cohorts of people go through different life experiences, which is why we can talk about the silent generation, the boomer generation, generation X, generation Z, you know, like there are problems with those terms and they overgeneralize, but there's also some, some nugget of truth in them. And so, for example, um, I've thought a lot about, you know, in the past couple of years as I've watched how people use gender language to identify themselves or to reject identifying themselves or whatever. I've, I've watched this with a lot of interest. Um, and, and, you know, I don't have a value judgment about it. Um, you know, I, I feel as though the terms that make sense for me and work for me have a lot to do with the era in which I grew up, which means if I were to try to call myself, for example, non-binary, it just feels wrong. It, 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 it doesn't fit. It, it doesn't sort of make sense of me. And yet, if I call myself androgynous, which is not terribly unlike non-binary. I mean, it's sort of, it's related in a way, but it's a term that has resonance from my childhood. It comes out of a particular era of feminism that's meaningful to me, which is definitely not third wave feminism. Um, so I see that there are different terms and different ways of self-identifying. I see that there has been an explosion of available identities that people can take, reject, blend, mix, modify. And again, I don't say this in a judgmental sense. At one level, I think that's fantastic. I mean, let a thousand flowers bloom. You know, people should have the identity of their integrity. On the rare occasions that I, you know, hear someone of college age sort of poking fun at the terms that we old folks use, I sort of feel like, well, every generation sort of judges their elders. I judged my elders. My elders judged their elders. That just goes with the territory. Um, but I think, I think one of the things that, that was possible for my generation, including my queer generation, was we had, you know, the, once, once we survived through the worst of AIDS, for those of us who did survive, um, we had the capacity to, in some ways, to kind of settle down. And, and, and again, you know, I, I don't mean get in, go in a closet. I don't mean be hidden. But, but I do think that for my generation, there has been a, a possibility of living a much more normal life than I could ever have predicted as a child. You know, one of the things my mother said to me, so when I first came out to my parents, my mother basically didn't talk to me for a year. My father basically wouldn't shut up about it for a year. It was really a hassle. Um, but one of the things one of them said was, you're going to have an unhappy life. And, you know, my mother passed away a few years ago. And if I could talk to her right now, I would say, you know what, mom, you're right. I'm having an unhappy life right now. I'm having an unhappy life because Trump's president and the Republicans are destroying the country. I'm not actually having an unhappy life because I'm queer. Not at all. Um, you know, I don't know what my life would have been like if I had been straight, you know, or if I had been quite, you know, traditionally cisgender. Um, but the unhappiness in my life these days has very, very little to do with my queerness. I mean, there, there's still some internalized homophobia. It still comes up. I still root it out and all. But 
I did not know this would be possible. And I feel as though my age, my generation, my cohort is the first generation or cohort that that was really possible for. I suspect that for your generation, both the complexities of queerness and the things that make life frightening are quite different. When I got out of college, I could go straight to a job at a nonprofit, have a string of relatively short-term nonprofit jobs that paid well enough, go to grad school, you know, get a professor, get, get visiting professor jobs without a lot of trouble. I mean, I don't want to say nothing was hard, but compared to what you all are facing, fuck, nothing was hard. I mean, really, you know, I, I, I am so sad for your generation in terms of the world that you're inheriting and the world that my generation failed to fix for you. So I'm just going to say that. That's not about queerness, but it's not irrelevant to queerness either, because I do think that for those of us who have activist histories or inclinations, who think a lot about ethics, who think a lot about making the world better in various ways, you know, our queerness has kind of shaped that. We, we really did want a world where people of all sorts, of all types, of all identities would have the opportunity to have good lives. And that is something that I and many, many people in my generation worked on for a long time. Apparently, we kind of fucked it up because, you know, look at the shit you're facing. But having said that, um, I think that there are both similarities and differences generationally around queerness. Um, I do think that it, at a school like CC, if, if you are among the right group of people, you're probably not going to have a super hard time being out among your peers. That was still more delicate in my days. That shaped things a little bit differently. But, um, but having said that, I, you know, we're all different as individuals. We're all similar as human beings. And our group identities are complicated, but but I think I think the three of us right now, for example, on this on this gathering, would all like a just, inclusive world where everyone gets to have a good life, where the environment is not being trashed, where everyone is respected, where we are all making a difference against all forms of inequality. And in that sense, I think we're similar. But I think the details of my queer life today and queer college life today. I mean, I, I do think there are some differences. So I'm sorry, that was a very long answer, but that's what you inspired. I really appreciated it though. Sure. All the turns, I liked it. I took a lot from it. It made me think, um, do you feel as though Colorado College in particular from what you've seen maybe just seeing, I don't know if you feel like you've experienced it, but do you feel as though the college has contributed to the LGBT community in any meaningful way? Um, well, I, I, I do, but I think one of the things that makes it hard for me to answer this question um, the most thoughtfully is that because I myself have, have not engaged very much with the LGBTQ community in town outside of, say, the college and, say, the churches I've been part of. So I don't, you know, I have never been a bar goer. So I don't go hang out at Club Q or the underground or, or wherever. Um, 
And other than Pride Weekend, I don't go to all that many sort of social events. Like I'm, I'm kind of a homebody, as is my spouse. And so, you know, our, we have not been part of the, the social community of queer people in the town outside the college. So, so I don't sort of know what those interactions are in any real detail. But this is what I will say. Um, the college has been, um, in, in my personal experience, it has been a pretty good place to work as a queer person. The second we got here, before I even had a job, I was able to register as a domestic partner with Phoebe when she was hired here and to basically get all her benefits as though I had been a legally married spouse. This is way before marriage was legal in Colorado Springs and it's way before even civil, uh, civil unions, the terminology, were legal. So the, the college um, has made, since we've been here, the college has made good faith efforts to support its queer people. It has screwed up a few things. It has generally fixed them when enough people have protested about them. Um, I probably could be angry about some of those things, but you know, it, it did its best and it eventually did fix most of them. Um, I do think that there, I mean, of course, all of us still have a little homophobia in us. There are, there are still flashes of homophobia at the college that I, I don't actually really feel um, at liberty to, to talk about. Um, but I think that by supporting its queer students, faculty, and staff, CC has made an indirect contribution to the community. So um, I think, for example, of a queer identified student, I, I actually don't know if she's lesbian or bi, I'm, I guess lesbian, I'm not sure, who graduated a couple of years ago um, and who is now in vet school uh, and doing awesome things in the world. And I feel like even if she was this really self-possessed person her whole time at CC, and CC didn't need to sort of heal her to let her go out and do that. I think the fact that CC really supported her and did not throw any barriers in her way it is still productive. Like that's still something. Um, so I think that CC graduates queer students who go out and make a difference in the world. And, and by providing the, the kinds of support it does, and by the fact that there are a number of out queer people who are good role models here, some faculty, some staff, you know, and by the fact that there are some straight staff here who are particularly good role models for queer people as I see it, um, and, you know, and who have dealt with their own homophobia and are, and, and are really capable of providing good support um, to students. I think the college is actually serving the community that way. So, you know, I, I think, for example, of someone like Jordan Radke, who I don't know how many queer students she actually intersects sex with in the uh, uh, Collaborative for Community Engagement, but I am 100% sure that if any out queer students go to her, she supports them and helps them to connect with communities and contributes to the work they do. Like that's just off the top of my head. So I think the college does that. Um, and I think the fact that the college has some professors who offer classes that address queerness positively and productively, academically, and also provide for some degree of sort of personal growth in those contexts is really good. When I was at Oberlin College as an undergraduate, 
there was something called the experimental college where students could teach courses. You could actually, if you were a student, you could take a student taught course for like one of your credits, you know, one of your, however many credits it was. And I co-taught a course while I was in college uh, called, uh, it had to have a neutral title because it was going to be on transcripts and parents were going to see it. So the transcript title was The Individual in Society. The subtitle, which was really what the course was about, was The Gay and Lesbian Experience. Um, that was like the only queer course at my college when I was in college, pretty much. If, if there was one other course or two other courses, I didn't know about them. In one of my classes, I took a, a classics course called The Hero's Journey in college. And I wrote a paper called Coming Out as a Hero's Journey. It was my final paper for the class. It went fine. The professor wasn't homophobic. Everything was cool. But it was still highly unusual that that would happen at all in the 80s. Now, you can take all these queer classes in FGS. You can take classes from Tip Reagan. Um, I'm imagining there are a number of other ones that I'm just not thinking of at the moment. But, you know, so the fact that the school offers quality courses on queer lives and experiences and insights and so on, I think that's great. So I think that's a contribution to the world at large. A great contribution. Honestly. And without, without making any assumptions, and I'm explicitly not asking either of you to identify yourselves about this at all, but if anyone in Rushan's class is straight and cisgender, the fact that that person is in the class taking this class now is a phenomenal thing. So, what's up next? <laughs> um, you did mention this, and it was something I was thinking about. If I remember the year correctly, you moved to Colorado in 2003. Mm -hmm. So that was before gay marriage was legal in the U.S. fully. Oh, yeah. And that's not the most noticeable thing that's changed in the last 17 years, but it possibly is. It's one of the biggest I can think of in my lifetime. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious, we can think on a grand scale like that, or maybe on a smaller scale, it's up to you. But I'm curious, what are the most noticeable changes you've noticed in queer acceptance and experiences since you've moved to Colorado? Hmm. So I think that the, the, the marriage thing is, is huge. I do think it's huge. It's not just huge because same-sex marriage is at the moment legal across the country. I also think it's huge that support for same-sex marriage, or marriage equality, which is what I prefer to call it, has gone up as quickly as it has. I mean, when we first moved out here, same-sex marriage was not legal in any state, and the public was still generally more opposed to it than in favor of it. And that really has shifted. Now, I know that in the past few years, uh, with everything that's gone on with the current administration, it's very complicated to try to talk about trends around acceptance and around justice in a whole variety of areas. So I, I understand that that's really complicated. But for me, the, um, the, the marriage equality thing is, is 
one of the biggest deals. I also think that in popular culture, and, and I know very little about the popular culture that your generation pays attention to, and I apologize, but my just sort of general sense from, you know, seeing what's on Netflix or seeing what's on Amazon Prime or whatever is that there's an awful lot more both of sort of explicitly queer programming and also of programming that includes a lot of queerness because that's what the storyline calls for. But it isn't, it isn't about queerness in quite the same way. You know, um, it, it isn't like those interminable AIDS movies or all those incredibly, incredibly bad lesbian movies that were made in the 90s that are just god awful. And, and, you know, thank God they were made, but they're just, they're, they're you know, and they were really, they, you know, in the 80s, in the 90s, so much of the culture that included any sort of queerness or any sort of transness was about queerness and it was about transness. And that's not bad. It was, it was necessary. It was useful. Some of it was interesting. Some of it was good. But I love being at a moment in time where, um, where, you know, so for example, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Great British Baking Show. I'm an obsessive fan of it. I've watched every season that we have in the U.S. multiple times. First of all, I love that one of its original hosts is a lesbian and that that simply is what it was. Like, that, that was not, there was no referendum. It was not the point of anything. In fact, her replacement was a lesbian, though I think she's leaving the show this year. Um, you know, and that the, I, I love that the bakers are this wonderful, complicated mix of all sorts of, okay, there have not been any actual drag queens and there has not been anyone who, who I could identify as trans yet. So that's sadly a limitation. But, but in terms of just homosexuality, you know, the show's sort of a mix. And the fact that that, that is not remarkable is remarkable. So to me, and, and again, I, I, I could really imagine that, that at your age and stage of life and everything, that sounds really sold out and that sounds really sort of pathetic. Like, you know, I, I, sh you know, I should be like, you know, queer eye should be even queerer. You know, I, I, that's the sort of thing I should be saying or why, why aren't there any, you, you, know, um, you know, trans people or non-binary people or, or, you know, why is there not more, you know, why are there not 10 versions of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy that, that, that cover a variety of identities? I, mean, I totally could see that, it would make sense. But for me, and maybe it's just because I'm 54 and kind of tired, um, the very fact that, that there are so many cultural venues in which queerness is not all that remarkable, is this, to me, that is the single biggest positive change. You know, I watched Marin Alsop recently conducting uh, a version of Bern Leonard Bernstein's Mass that was done last summer. I, I think last summer it was finally made available to the public during COVID. You know, and she's this incredible conductor. And the fact that she is, I think, identifies as a lesbian, has a female partner who's, I think, a musician, doesn't matter at all. But, you know, the fact that she as a woman could have risen so high in conducting, let alone a queer woman, risen so high in conducting, and, and, you know, I mean, from my generational background, that is amazing. And also, I love that the, I love, 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 love that the Black Lives Matter movement 
has such a queer and trans BIPOC presence. That's really important to me. I was trying to figure out how I wanted to phrase that. Mm -hmm. um, I think I phrased it the way I wanted because, you know, in, in prehistorical times, like when I was younger, it was very true that, um, that lesbian and gay movements and then the earliest part of the bi movement in its formative days um, took a leaf from the African-American civil rights movement and used some of its strategies to try to make its appeals for justice. And when that happened, there was some discontent among African-American activists that queer people were doing that. And there are legitimate reasons for that discontent. I also think for some of those people, there might've been some homophobia in there. But I really love that, you know, you have male and, and female and outside the gender box, people of color in really visible positions, being some of the intellectuals and putting their bodies on the line in this moment and that that's visible. So I think that's also huge because I will say that um, I am as ashamed as anyone, as, as someone who taught courses on racism, anti-black racism for years. I taught my first course on anti-black racism at a college in 1994. So I have been concerned about and ashamed about the racism in white queer spaces for a long time. I have not always had the tools to know how to challenge people about it, but it has concerned me. Uh, and so I'm so delighted that somehow in this moment, I don't know that it's everyone, but, but enough people have sort of gotten behind the complexities of intersectionality that we have this, this moment. And, and, you know, I, as a, I, since I, I mean, again, I don't really think of myself as all that cis, but I'm not trans. So I'm looking at these gender creative people of color as a white, not trans person and going, wow, this is great. Those were, thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated all those points and perspectives, especially I asked a really broad question yeah. over a large swath of time. I'm That's fine. I mean, I, and this is, um, you know, I, I've also taught, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've taught LGBTQ classes at places like UCCS and I've guest taught in Tip Reagan's class. I mean, so this is stuff I do think about a lot and have thought about for a long time, but I, I love this archives project. I mean, it's a really delightful project and I'm, I'm honored to be part of it. So Thank well, you. I'm keeping my eye on the time because I actually yeah. have a meeting at 3.30. So I'd say we have 20 good minutes left up to, yeah, about 20 good minutes left. What, what other things are important for you? Yes, we do want to respect your time. And because of that, we're going to ask one more question, if that okay. works for you. Sure. Um, what have you learned, if any, being a queer identifying person in the Springs, in Colorado Springs? Oh, what a question. Oh, boy. Um, 
I think my, my answer is sort of a mix of surprisingly optimistic and wildly cynical. So one thing I've learned is that I have to be aware of how I appear to other people. I have to be aware of how I carry myself. I have to be aware of what's on my car and things like that if I want to have full access to the springs. And I'm one of those people, again, I think it's the urban background. I don't want there to be any neighborhoods I don't go into. So I do all sorts of things in Briargate. I do all sorts of things in the Southeast Quadrant. You know, I, I go to places that are not the most liberal, always, parts of town. You know, um, and, and so I've realized that if I want to do that, I, I simply have to be alert in ways that I don't know if I would have to be as alert in other places. So that's the more cynical side of me talking. The, the most sort of optimistic or hopeful thing I've learned is that I also can't assume that people here are going to be homophobic or even if they are, that they're necessarily going to treat me badly, which is something I did assume when I first moved out here. So at one point, um, I, uh, I started going to a therapist who I suspected was an evangelical, but um, he struck me as a good therapist. And at the end of our first session, I said, you know, he sort of asked how it had gone. Um, and, and I said, well, this seems good. I think we, we have a good dynamic. Um, it is really important to me that you know that this is my sexuality, that I'm in a same-sex marriage, um, and that whatever you personally may believe, that this is only gonna be productive for both of us if you treat me well. And he said, this is, you know, probably more than 10 years ago now. What he said was something like, well, I certainly don't think treating people badly is part of the gospel. So that was very clever of him because he, by saying that, he conveyed that indeed he was an evangelical. I mean, I, I, I think we both knew that, but also that he was going to agree to treat me well, to not judge me, to not try to change me, and to engage me on the topics of my concern, not his stereotypes. And so that was a really telling moment for me. And I've had all sorts of moments where, you know, another thing I should mention that, that does have bearing on my kind of interactions with the town is that Phoebe for a while sang in um, a Sweet Adeline's uh, choir. That's like an acapella women's barbershop group. The one in Colorado Springs was huge. It, it, it took third place in a global competition out of hundreds of such choruses. So given how big it was, you can imagine that it had a few queer people in it. But as you can probably also imagine, it had a lot of evangelical, conservative, very feminine -y women in it. And, you know, Phoebe's more feminine than me, but, you know, she not not... Not quite super much so. Um, and so, you know, there were a few years when she was part of that group where, where 
I was therefore sort of secondarily part of the group. I was part of their socializing. I went to their con concerts. I, you know, I watched them compete online, you know, around the world and all this stuff. And even in that space, you know, there was this sort of tacit agreement that no one was going to challenge the conservatives for being conservative. No one was going to call them out. No one was going to, you know, um, push them. But also that they were not going to harass any of the queer women in the group. You know, so one of the section leaders, so I did, I sang with the group for like three months, but I cannot deal with I cannot deal with makeup and you have to wear over the top makeup to perform these groups. And I'm like, I am too, I am, I am too androgynous for makeup. So, so, but during the time that I was with the group, the section leader for the baritones, so not the lowest voices, but kind of the second lowest voices was an out lesbian in a same sex marriage. Um, and all the women in her group knew who she was and knew who her spouse was and no one ever said a word. And you know, I mean, people did say, you know, how's so-and-so today? Like, so they'd refer to her spouse. No one challenged her. But if someone said something about gun-loving or supporting Republicans or whatever, she also didn't say anything to them. So there, there is though a weird kind of, you know, I, I would have called it live and let live sometimes here. If you're going to be in politically mixed or culturally mixed or religiously mixed groups, you're just going to have that. And, you know, I, I still have some old activist fire in my bones. And when I hear someone say how wonderful Trump is, you know, A, I want to throttle them. B, I want to tell them the thousand reasons they're wrong. In most cases, the decorum of Colorado Springs is that that's not actually the best option. So what I've also learned here is that Activism is circumscribed to certain places and events and people, and that there are activist things I could have done anywhere else that I can't do here. Um, but if I'm willing to abide with that and grit my teeth and grumble, um, some of the people who will come into my life will shock me because they will treat me so incredibly well and we will see the world so incredibly differently, and yet they will be decent people in my life. I did not think that would, I would be like that uh, when I was in college. I'm going to tell you one really quick story um, to, to sort of tag that, that I think is important. Um, when I was 21 and just out or so, and just out of college, I was visiting with my father, who had been a radical activist in his own way in his days, you know, and he said, he asked me, do you think of yourself as a radical? And I said, yes. And he said, you're not always going to be. You're, you're going to grow up. And when you're my age, you're not going to be a radical. And I burst into tears. And I, I think I hit him, actually. And I yelled and screamed, that's not true. I'm always going to be a radical. And what I think now, when I reflect on the last 30 years or so, and my life in Colorado Springs, and the state of the world, and everything else that's going on, the truth is that he was absolutely right and 100% wrong. I am not a radical activist now. I haven't gotten arrested in decades. I haven't been to a protest in months. Um, I have settled into what certainly looks a lot like a lovely upper middle class or you know life with all sorts of creature comforts and some pets. Um, 
I have a good paying job that's pretty stable. I mean, I hope it stays stable with COVID, who knows, but so far so good. Um, you know, I, I've just celebrated my 15th anniversary basically at the college. So in some ways, I look like the biggest sellout you two have ever met. It's really true. But my thinking has actually gotten more radical over the years. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm as strong a feminist as I ever was. I'm as strong a democratic socialist as I ever was. Um, I'm as strong a queer pride person as I ever was. But I also think that as my life has settled down and as I've had to, as I've been forced to interact with people who I would not have chosen, my younger self would not have chosen to move here or interact with half the people I interact with. But what I think is radical is that I have found a sense of humanity in people I didn't expect it in. And they have found a sense of humanity in me that their stereotypes might not have led them to expect. And so there is the radicalism of massive protesting, and that's crucial, and we must keep having it. And there, there is the, radical, uh, the radicalism of throwing the monsters out of office, you know. There's also the radicalism of coming to your deepest humanity and seeing the deep humanity in everyone else, especially the people who you most disagree with and who you think are causing the most harm. And what's radical about that in my experience, and Colorado Springs has really helped me with this, is if I see the humanity of people who are literally harming me, you know, then at some level, I'm not sinking to their level. You know, I'm, I'm not saying we should all be necessarily pacifists and let other people beat us up. I mean, I'm, that's not at all what I'm saying. But by refusing to refusing to write off the great majority of Colorado Springs as evil monsters and seeing them as flawed human beings, like me, different, but like me, a flawed human being, I feel as though I have found a different way of being radical that kind of goes to the root of some of our suffering. And um, do we need the marches? Do we need the protests? You know, do we need to defund the police? Do we, you know, of course, of course. But do we also need ways of surviving day to day and, and bringing our best selves to the game and teaching other people that we devalued, mistreated, harassed, murdered, you know, queer people who are considered so Im immoral and so horrible and so much a threat to the country that literally the two things that Trump is running on are racism, well, three things, racism, xenophobia, and transphobia. I mean, that's what he's running on. So for those of us who are queer or gender bent or pick your term to, to be full human beings and live our best selves, that is a different form of radicalism. And I think it has a place. It's not the only thing we need. You know, again, I can't say this enough. We need the protests, you know, we, 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 need, we need the changes. We need the big, large-scale changes. We need every fucking white person to discover that they're racist and start working against it. I cannot, I cannot say that enough. And we all need to find our best selves from within whatever our oppressions are so that we can teach other people that, by God, actually, we are all human. If we actually believed we were all human, the world would be a shitload better.
Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Oh, you bet. It's, it's been my pleasure. I, you know, I have five last minutes if you have any last burning things. So if you don't, I'm good to stop. Whatever you want to do is good. I believe I've run out of questions. Spencer and I really enjoyed speaking. I'm going to speak for myself, but thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for speaking with us. I've really learned a lot. I'm excited to read over my notes and take a lot well, of it. It, it was a delight. Um, you know, all of you in this class are just delightful. I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm so moved that I was able to, you know, come and and sort of help folks set up. I hope everyone has a good experience with their interviewing. And you know, what a strange year. I really wish you the best of luck with this academic year. And I hope that you're able to engage your studies with good integrity and that you have good support systems for when things are hard. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your day. Stay you safe. As well. Thank you. Bye. Bye.